afternoon, good evening, and good night. Welcome back to the Shelter and Warning podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. We are a Monster of the Week podcast, literally. Every episode, we cover a new monster. Monsters can be both fact and fiction, and they're usually hiding in plain sight. The more you know about monsters, the better equipped you are to protect yourself if you ever have to face one. Two quick notes before we start. One, if anything I say is inaccurate, insensitive, offensive, or should be added to, contact me. I'm trying my best to find accurate information on all my topics, but I welcome all corrections and would love to have an open dialogue on any larger issues. All social media handles and my email will be in the description and I'll save them at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. Two, this is also a blanket trigger warning slash content warning for mentions of violence, abuse, sexual assault, and death. While nothing is overtly gory, and we really don't touch on the sexual assault at all, Ted Bundy did all of those things, and if any of them trigger or upset you, please take care of yourself. Our topic today, Ted Bundy. How did he get away with the sheer number of crimes he committed? What factors let him avoid suspicion for so long? And why is he still America's best-known serial killer? And why do so many people idolize him? Stats. Ted Bundy killed 30 women and girls in the span of four years, from the time he was 28 to 32 years old. His youngest victim was 12, and there are theories that he killed over 100 people. He was executed in 1989 after going through two trials and receiving three life sentences. Bundy has one daughter, although her whereabouts are unknown. Also, after looking up Ted Bundy on Twitter... Side note, I highly, highly recommend not doing this if you want any peace of mind. I feel the need to say that Ted Bundy was a bad person. He was a serial killer. He was a raging misogynist and sexual sadist. If you think that he was misunderstood or somehow pushed to the edge and forced to commit these acts or that he was a victim in any way, please continue listening because none of that is true. Alright, disclaimer's over. Let's get into the monster stuff. Ted Bundy, named Theodore Robert Cowell, was born on November 24, 1946, in Burlington, Vermont. His mother, Eleanor Louise Cowell, was young and unmarried when she had him. So, to avoid social stigma and embarrassment, Bundy was raised believing his grandparents were his biological parents and that his mother, Eleanor, was his older sister. There is no conclusive evidence as to who his father was. His birth certificate lists a Lloyd Marshall while his mother says that Bundy's father was a veteran named Jack Worthington. There are also theories that Ted's abusive grandfather, Samuel Cowell, was his biological father as well, but that is purely speculation. Ted and his mother, who he still believed was his sister, moved to Tacoma, Washington in 1950. A year later, Eleanor Cowell met and fell in love with Johnny Culpepper Bundy, and Ted officially changed his last name from Cowell to Bundy. I'm not going to go in-depth about his childhood because I don't think there is a point. Something I found when I was researching this episode is that people often grab onto this awkwardness of Ted Bundy's youth as a reason that someone should have seen it coming. That someone should have looked at this awkward, scared, detached kid who just moved across the country with his mom slash sister and realized he was going to be a serial killer? Kill at least 30 women and girls? No. We've all been awkward teenagers, and we've all been weird about our emotions. I understand the need to find a precursor to Ted Bundy's crimes, but the whole point of Bundy, his whole twisted appeal, 
And the reason that so many people still remember him is precisely because he was a very normal person, at least outwardly, until one day he wasn't. By insisting that teenage awkwardness leads to murder, you aren't pointing out a precursor to Bundy's life. You're just villainizing normal teenage behavior. Anyway, Ted Bundy spent his teenage years in Washington, going to church, taking care of his younger siblings, and being a Boy Scout. He got a scholarship to the University of Puget Sound and decided to study psychology and oriental studies. After two semesters, Bundy transferred to the University of Washington in Seattle. As part of his psychology degree, Bundy started volunteering at the Seattle Suicide Hotline, which is where he met former cop and crime writer Anne Rule. Remember her, she comes up later. During his time in Seattle, Bundy also met his girlfriend, a woman who goes by the pseudonym Stephanie Brooks. She dated Bundy for about a year and broke up with him after she graduated because of his, quote, immaturity and lack of ambition, end quote. She moved back to her parents' house in California and essentially cut off all contact with him. <sighs> Remember Anne Rule? Yeah. Rule is important in this story because of how close she was with Ted Bundy at the hotline. In 1980, she wrote an autobiography slash biography about her experiences with Bundy, and she fills in a lot of the gaps in his story that not a lot of people, other than his closest friends, would have known. According to Rule, after he got dumped by Stephanie Brooks, Bundy went back to Vermont for the summer, which is where he looked up the records and realized that his older sister was actually his mother, which, obviously, was a shock. Once he returned to school, Bundy, probably influenced by his breakup and Brooks calling him unambitious, dedicated himself to the Republican Party of Washington. Specifically, he worked on the presidential campaign of Nelson Rockefeller, and he worked hard enough in school to become an honor student. He also started dating Elizabeth Klopfer around this time, and the two would date on and off for about six years. During the summer of 1973, four years after she dumped him, Bundy found Stephanie Brooks and started to try and win her back, as, like, a revenge thing. Bundy was going to law school, he had plans for the future, and as far as Stephanie Brooks knew, he cleaned up his act. So when he proposed to her, she accepted. Keep in mind that he was still dating Elizabeth Klopfer, neither women knew about the other, and this whole thing with Stephanie Brooks was just a quest for revenge on Bundy's side. Two weeks after he proposes, Ted Bundy dumps Stephanie Brooks, he refuses to answer any of her calls, she's devastated, and shortly after that, women start to go missing. Nobody but Bundy himself knows when he started killing. A few biographers, including Ann Rule, believe that he may have started in his early teens, and an eight-year-old girl did vanish from Tacoma when Bundy was 14 and living there. According to Bundy himself, the first time he tried to kidnap a woman was in 1969, and the first murder he committed was in 1972. All of Bundy's victims were young white women with long dark hair parted in the middle, and it's pretty much a fact that he chose his victims based on how similar they looked to Stephanie Brooks, the woman who dumped him. The first of Bundy's confirmed kills was in 1974, when he was 27 years old, although he had been a murder suspect the previous year, when a co-worker noticed he had handcuffs in his car. On January 4th, 1974, just after midnight, Ted Bundy snuck into the apartment of Joni Lenz, that's a pseudonym by the way, bludgeoned her with a metal rod, and sexually assaulted her. She survived the attack, but she had permanent brain damage as a result. Bundy's first kill was Linda Ann Healy, a University of Washington psychology student and his cousin's roommate. Bundy broke into her room late at night and attacked her, knocking her unconscious. 
When she was knocked out, Bundy changed her out of her bloody nightgown and into a t-shirt and jeans, made her bed, and carried her away. From that point on, young women started disappearing about once a month. His next victim was 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson, who he killed on March 12, 1974, in Olympia, Washington. About a month later, Susan Rancourt disappeared from Ellensburg, Washington. When questioned, two separate students said that a man wearing his arm in a sling had asked them to help him load some books into his car. Bundy had a ton of lies he'd used to lure women away. He'd often wear fake injuries. He'd often fake injuries, wearing a sling or using crutches and asking for help loading things into his car or getting around. There was one time he went around, asked young women for help with a sailboat, which is um a really terrible lie. That one didn't work out great, and most people clocked pretty early on that he was hiding something. One woman went as far as his car when she realized that there was no sailboat in sight and ran back to where there were people. After Susan Rancourt, Bundy killed Brenda Ball after Susan Rancourt, Bundy killed Brenda Ball on June 1st. George Ann Hawkins, another University of Washington student, was killed on June 11, 1974 and a few students reported seeing a man on crutches asking for help loading a briefcase into his car. The last victims of Bundy's spring killing spree that year were Janice Ott and Denise Nasland from Issaquah in Washington. When questioned, eight different people talked about a man named Ted with his arm in a sling who asked different women for help unloading a package from his car. They also said that he spoke with a very clipped, almost British accent, and law enforcement used this description to put up flyers around the Seattle area, asking for tips from the public. Bundy's girlfriend, Anne Rule, and a former psychology professor of his from the University of Washington all reported him. The police, inundated with thousands of tips, ignored it. In the fall of 1974, Bundy started going to law school at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. He also started killing again, with Nancy Wilcox disappearing from Holiday, Utah on October 2, 1974. Two weeks later, Bundy killed 17-year-old Melissa Smith, who was the daughter of the local police chief. Two weeks after that, he killed Laura Aim, who was also 17. Both girls' bodies were found relatively quickly, with Melissa's being found nine days after the murder and Laura's being found about a month later. In what soon became a turning point for Bundy's case, he kidnapped Carol Durant on November 8, 1974, by pretending to be a police officer and telling her that someone had broken into her car. Bundy told Carol that he would take her to the police station in his car. Halfway through the ride, Bundy pulls over and tries to put handcuffs on Carol, but because she's fighting him off, he accidentally fastens both handcuffs onto the same wrist. Bundy then tries to bash her head in with a crowbar, which Carol catches and then she jumps out the car door and runs away from him as fast as she can, narrowly escaping with her life. She gets to a police station, an actual police station with actual police, and describes what happened to the authorities. When they investigate, they find out that a strange man who fit Bundy's description had been lingering around a high school that was close to where Carol DeRanche escaped, and a key that opened the handcuffs on her wrist was found in the parking lot. 17-year-old Debbie Kent had also disappeared from that school the same night. Bundy killed five more women in the six months following this event, shifting his crimes from Utah to Colorado and Idaho. On January 12, 1975, Karen Campbell disappeared from her hotel in Snowmass, Colorado. Her body was found a month later. Ski instructor Julie Cunningham disappeared on March 15, 1975. 
Denise Oliverson went missing from Grand Junction, Colorado on April 6th. Lynette Culver went missing from Pocatello, Idaho on May 6th. She was 12 years old. And Susan Curtis vanished on June 28th. Bundy confessed to the murder of Curtis right before he was executed, but her body and the bodies of the other three girls I just mentioned were never found. After the Durant ordeal, authorities went back to cross-check their massive list of suspects. They put together lists and characteristics and traits that the killer must have had. For example, many eyewitnesses remembered a tall, dark-haired white man who drove a gold Cadillac. It was also pretty clear that the killer had to have gone to the University of Washington, and once the police put the pieces together, they found that Bundy was one of 25 people who was on four separate His file was about to be investigated when they got a call that Ted Bundy had been arrested in Salt Lake City. Bundy was detained for not stopping for a police officer, but when his car was searched, a number of concerning items were found, including a ski mask, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, an ice pick, and most incriminating, a brochure of Colorado hotels with a check mark next to the hotel that Karen Campbell had disappeared from. Bundy was identified in a police lineup by both Carol DeRanche and several of the witnesses from the high school he stopped at. After a week-long trial, Bundy was sentenced to 15 years in Utah State Prison for the kidnapping of Carol DeRanche. He was extradited to Colorado to stand trial for murder, but managed to escape into the mountains for six days. He went back into custody, but was able to escape again, catching a flight to Florida, where he broke into a sorority, killing Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman. He also bludgeoned two other women in the house, Karen Chandler and Cassie Kleiner, and later broke into a home, severely injuring Florida State University student Cheryl Thomas. Bundy's last murder was that of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach in Lake City, Florida. Three days later, Bundy was stopped and arrested. He decided to represent himself in court, but that didn't stop him from being convicted for the murders of Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman and sentenced to death. He was also convicted of the murder of Kimberly Leach, and during that trial, he married former co-worker Carol Ann Boone in the courtroom. Bundy waited for about 10 years to be executed, during which he confessed to the murders that I've talked about here, tried and failed to get a sentence changed, and taunted the families of his victims as much as he could. He died on January 24, 1989, and outside the execution room, a crowd of people cheered. Abnormal psychology is interesting to read about and to study, but Ted Bundy specifically, and most well-known serial killers in general, would never get away with their crimes without the immense privilege that they have, and how, because of that privilege, people believe that they are innocent when all evidence points to the contrary. I hope that this episode of the Shelter and Warning podcast entertained and educated you. If it did, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes. You can find the Shelter and Warning podcast at Shelter and Warren on Twitter, at Shelter and Warning podcast on Tumblr, or contact us through email at shelterandwarningpodcast at gmail.com. Full transcripts of our show, along with a list of all of our sources, are available in our Google Drive and through our link tree. Once again, if there are any corrections or additions that you would like me to make, contact me and I will do my best to address them. Thank you so much for listening, and good luck. You'll need it. My dad asked me if I was going to talk about Bundy psychology, because when we as a society talk about serial killers, about people who commit these terrible acts, we want to believe that something is wrong with that individual person, and the rest of us, who are normal, will never have to worry about that. Aside from this being a very gross way to talk about mental illness, specifically 
mental illnesses that have already been demonized by society, Ted Bundy's whole story is clearly symptomatic of other issues. The only reason Ted Bundy was able to get away with that many crimes for that long was because of his identity as a white man and because of the incompetence of law enforcement. If you disagree with me on the first point, think about it this way. Bundy committed his crimes in broad daylight, often asking young women in public if they would help him. There is no world, especially not in the Pacific Northwest in the 1970s, where a person of color, specifically a man of color, asking young women questions, lurking outside their houses, and driving around stalking people would not be highly scrutinized. That is simply how racism works. Yet, Bundy was able to get away with all of this because his whiteness gave him a shield even while he was actively committing crimes. Law enforcement's incompetency shouldn't be underestimated here either. They repeatedly ignored tips about Bundy despite the fact that he fit every description. Both of his arrests were for traffic violations and he was able to escape from jail not once, but twice. Twice. Furthermore, Bundy was able to kill 30 women and girls in the time it took law enforcement to catch him, and those are just the murders that we know about. 